Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. How long have you been living in Berlin for? Oh, let's see. Uh, six years now. Six years. And what kind of, what inspired your move there? I, I can't remember. I know that's, I know that's, no, I really can't. Like, like, I, it's like, it's like when, you know, when you've, um, when you've told a story too many times and then, and then you forget if it really happened or not. And that's kind of what, that's kind of like what's happened. Like, like when, you know, for the first few years when we moved here, you know, I had my story about the reason I'd moved and, and my wife did also. And we just kind of kept repeating that and then looked at each other one day and went, I don't know if that's true. Was that the real reason? You know? And now I can't remember. And now it's so long that I can't ago that I can't remember. There was like the official reason, and there were probably other reasons. But it's it's yeah, I, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. It, it was it was what I what I what I can say is that it was a, in a way, it was a sort of random destructive act. Um, you know, you know, there's like sometimes you meet people and it's like they, you see them sabotaging their 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 romantic relationship and you have no idea why you're like what are you doing like this is great and you're you're sort of screwing it up and it's a lady realized that they just needed to sometimes that they just needed to make a random destructive action in their life that would change everything because they need you know in, in some larger sense they need change and I, I wonder if if we didn't do something like that you know things things were sort of um like progressing in a certain direction for me in australia which was a good direction you know it's it, it seems quite counterintuitive what i did it's like I, I left the party just when just when i was having a good time but then some people say you should do that Mm. That's funny that that kind of um you know in in kind of looking into your life and your career that sort of uh, I guess philosophical approach to things or at least uh self-analysis or just analysis in general seems to be a common thread in your work and and uh and in your analysis of things like you know 90s alternative rock um and and I guess in your approach to the career that you've created it's sort of like it's sort of like that. It feels like you don't want to get too comfortable. You kind of want to be living on the edge so that there is that continual growth. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, um, it's. I guess it's nice if it looks. I, I like it if it looks like that from the outside. I think I have a tendency to want things to be very comfortable. You know, I'm the kind of person like if I move in somewhere, or even if I'm on holidays, I've very quickly found like my favorite bakery and and you know my favorite spot to go and sit. I'm, it's like like I move in. I move into a place within five minutes of being there, and then I I just kind of imagine when I think about the future, I'm like, well, it'll probably just be like this from now on. You know? <laughs> so I yeah. So I, so I really like I'm really I'm, I, in some ways I'm a real creature of habit, but I'm. Um, but uh, but then yeah, if you like, if you've got that impression from my work, I guess I'm glad because I do like I admire people who who um, who are able to to change and 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 um, you know and incorporate those kind of random destructive actions into their work from time to time. I, I realise now that you know in telling you that story and also what I just said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Brian Eno, which probably happens quite a lot. I'm looking at, at the little deck of um his oblique strategies cards that I keep on the desk. And one of, one of those, like one of the pieces of advice he has on there is make a, make a sudden random action incorporate or something like that. And it's probably, I, pro I probably do do that from, from time to time. Craig Shifton is an ARIA award-winning author, broadcaster and radio producer. 
He is the author of three books, The Culture Club, Hey Nietzsche, Leave Them Kids Alone, and Entertain Us, The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock in the 90s. He's a former producer on Triple J and now resides in Berlin where he works with companies like the BBC. This week, the Ramble Room becomes the Philosophy Chamber as I welcome Craig onto the show. And remember, you can download this Ramble and the entire back catalogue at www.comingupnext.com.au where you can also find your links to iTunes, Stitcher and or Podbean so that you can subscribe to the show and it'll pop up once a week in your chosen platform. So while you go and do that, I'll hand you over to me and Craig as we get deep into philosophy life and what makes him silly. You mentioned that, you know, you left the party as things were just starting to heat up, I suppose, in Australia. What, what, what were some of those things that you felt like, you know, things were really ramping up for you? Uh, well, let's see. I mean, I mean, I've been working at the ABC for quite a long time at that point. Like, I've been working there for almost 10 years at, at Triple J. And, um, and I, just, I just finished uh, this project with, um, with a couple of the guys from The Chaser who I've spent quite a lot, a lot of time working with, with them, Chris Taylor and Andrew Hansen. We've made this comedy program for, for Triple J and the ABC called The Blow Parade, um, which was, which is a huge, you know, and very ambitious comedy project and, and ended up winning an award, although that, an aria, an aria, although that happened just after I moved to Berlin. But, um, but, you know, I could sort of feel that, like, that there was, yeah, that that was that having pulled that off and put it together and had a good response from it, I was like, okay, that's you know that was an ambitious comedy project of a kind that 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 I hadn't really tried before, and I could see now that if I'd stayed, it probably would have led to more work of that of that um of that kind, you know, if I'd stuck around. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, my second book had come out and was was um was was doing okay, you know, I was starting to get more more um more invitations to speak and talk and teach and things like that as a as a result of that to write write pieces and yeah you know and and the job at triple j was great like like you know an impossible job, job to leave in some ways because um like it's the kind of job where you have to invent a, a stupid non-existent reason to leave because there's no <laughs> no objective reason to do so you know it was, it was really good like they like i was yeah i, I had a ball working there and, and the, the people were amazing and the and the work in some ways just got better and better you know yeah i wouldn't I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that i i left there because i was dissatisfied because i i really wasn't it was good how did that career sort of begin for you? Uh, was 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 radio and broadcast and music, I suppose, in the bigger picture sense, was that something that you were always fascinated with or was it something that you kind of fell into? Yeah, I mean I did I did fall into it because because what happened was that I you know, in when like if you'd asked me in, in 1997, what, you know, where I saw my career going, I would have said, well, I'm going to be an artist, you know, like, like that's, that's what, what I was about. And I'd, I'd been at the National Art School for two years and I'd studied design. And yeah, and it was in that final year at, at, at NAS, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I was, I was um, working, you know, and hanging out a lot with this guy called Mark Shorter, who, um, who's, uh, yeah, who's a performance artist and also, you know, does, does, still does some work in radio to this day. He and I spent a lot of time going to art exhibitions and also talking about art, you know, and we'd evolved um, this kind of 
yeah, I guess between us, like a little theory about what art should be like or something. It was like, it's, it was like, you know, I think we thought that we'd started our own little art movement, although, although it probably didn't look that impressive to anybody else, but, but it was, it was just one of those exciting kind of creative relationships that, that got, you know, it certainly got me fired up. And I still often think about things that Mark said about art. He's a, he's a, a smart guy. And around that time, a friend of Mark's was working at 2SER at the Sydney community, Sydney community station that's um, associated with UTS. Uh, as a volunteer doing a, a what's on show which um which is kind of a i don't know maybe they still exist but i feel like that's one of those things that the internet has completely replaced isn't it like those shows that used to be on in the afternoon that were like okay if you want to go out go out and do some stuff in in sydney tonight here's it was basically just someone it could be just someone reading the listings in the newspaper of you know stuff that that um you could go and see hmm. uh yeah but this guy jan had you know had had you know he, he ran quite an interesting show he had uh, as part of this what's on format he had reviews you know people uh, coming in and talking about about theater shows that were on and movies and also, and he had the idea that it would be nice to have people talking about what's on in art in sydney and asked mark and i if we could do a, a weekly gallery review or wrap-up thing you know which we did you know that was that was great i mean I, I had not really had any thought about working in radio before that but doing that with mark was a blast it was fun you know yeah and so we did i think we did that for maybe my memory is really bad, but it would have been a couple of months, I think, of us coming in every week and, and talking about art on the radio. And then all of a sudden, Jan, the guy who was hosting the show, just kind of left, you know, in one of those one of those typical community radio disasters. And the, <laughs> the, the and the guy who was producing it was, I guess, the way I remember it is that he basically asked Mark and I, you know, a couple of days before the show, do you want to now host the show? And we went, well, yeah, sure. You know, was, so that was our, that was our, 2SER was kind of our, our playground and also radio school for the next two or three years. And, and that was fantastic. You know, it's, it's, I, I have a deep love for community radio, not just for what it offered me, but because of the, the space that it offers to people like me to just try out their ideas, you know, be, be terrible on the radio for, for a year and a half until you figure out what, like what's, what, what you like to do or how you want to make radio. I think, I think that was a great, yeah, it was great, great radio school for us. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned from that? I imagine that would have been a pretty steep learning curve at times. Yes, it really was. What were some of the bigger lessons that you you kind of took away from that and, and maybe you still carry with you today? Yeah, I mean, I do. There are some things I learned, not just about radio, but about life from that experience that I do, as you say, that I still, you know, have stuck with me. I mean, at the moment, I'm teaching a class at the School of Life, which just recently opened here. And the class I'm teaching is in how to have better conversation, how to have better conversations. And, and you know, and one of the things that I think people find interesting but also confusing about that at the beginning like when you tell them about it they say oh is conversation something you can actually learn like is it a is it a skill i always just thought it was something that happened naturally and some people are good at it and some people aren't i mean i i, I tend to feel that the opposite is true that that conversation is is you know it's an acquired skill it's something we learn socially and kind of accidentally but but it come being good at it i think is a matter of reflection it's like you know if you if you are if you make a habit of listening to yourself, identifying the the style with which you converse, you know, and then if, if you do that, you'll very quickly realize that there's, there might be things that are wrong with it. You know, like maybe you don't ask enough questions or maybe, maybe, maybe you don't ask the right questions or, you know, all those, those little things that, that, you know, make a, make a good conversationalist, I think are connected to style and, and the, the, the experience or the memory that I brought to bear mostly in teaching that course is the memory of working in radio. I remember that, you know, that our, the guy who produced us at the start, Ian Coombs, um, was very big on air checks. You know, he was like, like make a habit of at the end of every show, listening back to yourself, like sit there for an hour and listen back to the whole thing, which is excruciating at 
the beginning. You know, you think you're going on there and being and being super witty and interesting. And, you know, I told you before that Mark and I had this kind of private language or this way of talking about art that was super entertaining to us. I realized very quickly that that like 70 percent of that did not translate on the air because we weren't making the effort. So I guess, you know, what that experience taught me was was a kind of to to reflect on the way I communicate, you know, that, that very, what can be a very painful process of listening back to yourself and, and realizing what you, what you're doing wrong or what you, what, what you're saying too much of or what you're not saying is, has been really valuable, you know, in, in my work as a teacher and a, a writer and a public speaker and all those things, you know, I think, I think um, to, uh, I learned a lot from, from what I did there at community radio. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by this course that you're talking about, uh, Art, you know, in in how to have conversations and and kind yeah. and, and structuring uh, or re, reshaping the way that people think about that. Um, but I'd mm. love to know, sort of, before we kind of go forward, just to step back a little bit further. Yeah. And one of the things I ask all of my guests on this show is if they remember the first time that they did the thing that they do now as a living. Uh, it, it may be, I suppose it's a little bit different because you're, you've kind of gone through this, I guess, in a way, creative evolution from someone who wanted to be an artist into uh, someone who was on the radio into mm. a writer and a public speaker. But do you remember a kind of, I guess, inceptive point in your, in, in your childhood or adolescence where you realized that you wanted to follow a path in uh, in a kind of creative uh, career. Well, I t- well, if we're going to talk about my childhood, there's there's, there's two things. Um, one, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't remember this, but my my father likes to tell the story about about taking me to see Empire Strikes Back, which I guess I don't know that it was would have been right after it came out, but you know that was 1980, and I would have been six years old, so it could have been actually, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'd seen Star Wars already in reruns, you know. Um, and maybe on television and, and I, and I had like comic books and, you know, and picture books and stuff. So, so I, and I was, you know, I was super into it, like already a big, big fan and, and, and very sort of interested in and um, curious about the expanded universe of Star Wars. I had a lot of facts basically. Like I was, you know, I was a small expert or I like to think of myself as such. Uh, yeah. And, and my dad tells a story about, you know, about taking me to see Empire Strikes Back and, you know, and the, the credits kind of rolling at the start, you know, with that, that, uh, very exciting music of, of John Williams and then me kind of more or less standing up in a chair and explaining to everybody then what had happened up to that point so that they all understood <laughs> what was going to happen. It's like, I think, you know, I think the idea of like, like putting things in context or explaining things to people, you know, that's, that probably goes pretty like a long way back with me. I do. I remember enjoying that at an early age. I always like to know the story behind something, the backstory, you know, the, the history and then the history of the history and and I always and there, you know there's so much joy in that for me like like it still is you know I still love that that process of kind of going behind something and and understanding how it works uh, and then I had this slightly you know yeah I mean it's a weird like when I say that that's a that that's a, that's a, like you know to share that with other people is a is a passion I'm aware that that you know that not everybody wants it shared with them you know that there's, there's some, there is something kind of conceited and a little bit a little bit patrician about assuming that that everybody else needs this thing that you get so excited about but anyway I've tried to you know that I've hopefully I've become more sensitive to that since um since that incident at the Macquarie shopping center in, in 1980 uh, <laughs> and the, the other thing that, that I remember and, and and I often think about this is kind of a, a, a like a like an early inspiration, but also a cautionary tale is that I remember uh, 
when I was very young and had just learned how to draw that that I tried to make a book of all the animals in the world. I just, you know, I just started to get a sense of how many there were. And, you know, we had encyclopedias and things like that at home. And I would sort of, you know, I'd read the encyclopedias and then I'd read other books from the library that had other animals in them and then be watching, we'd watch David Attenborough on TV and there were more animals. And I just got the sense that all this information needed to be brought together. You know, I was like, there's, there's stuff in the encyclopedias that is not in the, not on the, on the TV and there's stuff on the TV that isn't in that book. I need to make a big list, you know? So I sat down one afternoon and started making what I imagined would be a list of all the animals in the world with an illustration of each one which i have to tell you Alistair, i didn't get that far like like you know i got i kind of gave up on the project after a while because it was too huge but a um, big undertaking it was huge yeah yeah it was it was very ambitious but but i still but the thing the weird thing is i still do that like like not to get too too psychological about it but i but any any project i take on like i just i'm just i'm writing an article now for, for abc magazines about it's for the anniversary of rage you know and they've asked me to do a thing about the cultural context of music videos and They've given me 2,000 words to do it, which is a, a decent stretch of time, but nowhere near enough to say all the things that I tried to cram into it in the first draft. I always do that. I always think that, like, you know, my, my first shot at something, I have to include everything that, not just everything that I know about the subject, but everything that everybody ever knew about the subject and try and <laughs> squeeze the thing. And it's, it causes so much trouble in my life still. I don't know why. And it's worse if I'm nervous about something, you know, if, if it's like my first go at something. Like my first book was a bit like that, Culture Club. That went through a lot of drafts and it had to be cut down from, you know, twice the size that it is now for exactly the same reason. I just felt like, like, I guess in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe no one will ever ask me to write a book again. I've got to put everything I know in it, you know. There might not be another chance. I think there's, I think there is value in doing that though, because better, I, I suppose... On a creative level, it's better to put more Don't out. Don't say that, Alistair. You're back. encouraging me. <laughs> I like no, encouraging no. people. Yeah, yeah. No, but, uh, like, you know, I think it's better to, to have more on the page and, and then need to strip it back than to kind of be struggling. And I don't – I mean, page can be metaphoric. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and then to need to strip it back as opposed to, you know, only being – you know, having to squeeze it all out. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be it. Might be true for some people, but I have to say that's that's never been a problem in my life. I'm 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 really stuck for things to say on a on a subject. I always think I'm going to be, and I over prepare. I you know I, I I do like three times the amount of research that is necessary for everything that I'm going to teach, and then the problem is always yeah, it's always like trying to. It's but it's not just about cutting it down. It's about making decisions, which I think sometimes I don't do early or often enough. You know, like I mistake collecting information for for writing something basically you know which i think is that's another skill that i learned from radio but still probably haven't learned often enough or need to keep in my mind more is that you know if you've got you've got three minutes between a song to explain something you better have a, a beginning a middle and an end you know like a, like a, an idea that you want to get across more than more than other ones and and a way to a, a way to do it that's yeah it's you know planning and structure all those things like i'm still i still uh, i could still be better Mm, being decisive, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why you know. That's why I guess that's why I'm so interested in in um, people like John Cage and and um, Marcel Duchamp and you know um, because because I like the way that you know a lot of their work was really about making decisions about about who makes decisions and who you you know. There's a lot of a lot of like very romantic talk still in in art and literature and music about about following your instincts or following your gut. You know, which which um, to me always results in like the least interesting things I do when I do that, you know, that's like, that's like the dumbest stuff that sits on the, on the top layer of my consciousness, you know, all the, all the received ideas or cliches that, that, you know, that I will tend to regurgitate as a, as a matter of course. 
yeah, that's that's what instinct gives me. You know, not much basically. Like like mm-hmm. I have to always find ways to ways to make decisions that I wasn't quite prepared for. You know, like like ways of subverting that process and and shaping my work in what to me is a more interesting direction because it surprises me. And that's what yeah, that's that's why I'm interested in that that particular strand of avant garde art and music. How, how do you kind of dig deeper and and because um, it's quite an uh fascinating thing to me that that you've said i'm i feel like i feel like there is a lot of that sort of go with your gut intuitive instinctive sort of mentality when it comes to being creative but then yeah as you're saying that i'm sort of thinking maybe that is just kind of scraping the surface of your consciousness how do you personally dig deeper and find some find that you know that next layer yeah i mean for me for me, it's not about, it's, I probably, you know, I probably uh, used a misleading metaphor there, you know, and I, I did, I did talk about surface and depth, um, which kind of gives the impression that I might be trying to go for something deeper within myself, but I don't really see it like that. It's more, you know, I, I want, I want whatever, whatever I do will come from the outside. You know, it's, it's, it will come from some combination of, of environmental and cultural influences that are around me, whatever I absorb either accidentally or intentionally. I, I want, you know, I just, I want the good ones. I want the, the ones that are right for the, for the job or for what I want to say, or the ones that, you know, that are, that are productive or lead off in interesting or surprising directions. So, so what I try to do when I work, like when I take on a project is to, first of all, get rid of those, yeah, those, those stock kind of cliche um, type things that might be hanging around first, which as I said, tend, you know, for me, they tend to be the first things that come and could be mistaken. I have mistaken them in the past for instinct and, and choose a different path, which can come in all kinds of ways. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, when, when I was writing, my last book entertain us which is about it's it's about music and pop culture in the 90s and i just happened you know when i was kind of in the early stages of writing it i happened to be back in sydney uh and i hadn't i hadn't lived there for for you know a year at that point and it's weird you know that's that's not such a long period of time but already the place had had become kind of nostalgic for me you know i was walking around these places that i walked around used to walk around every day and they were all charged with memories in a way that i wasn't quite prepared for um and yeah, and I just, I found as I walked around that, that places would remind me of songs, you know, things that, that I would, I was listening to on my Walkman in 1992 or 1995 or 98 or something, or concerts that I went to, or, or, um, you know, that a place would remind me of a person who used to listen to a particular kind of music or had a particular kind of haircut. And I, I wrote all those things down, not, not because, you know, not because, again, not because I'm interested in my history or in my kind of psychology when it comes to the nineties, but just because they, those things popped you know for me they were kind of out of the blue i hadn't thought about that song in the longest time or that hairstyle or that that music venue or something and uh, you know these struck me for a start as a way of an interesting way of getting away from the automatic things that i thought of when i thought about what music was like in 1992 or 94 or 95 you know i had these now i had these very particular specific things that were kind of odd and a little bit you know uh like embarrassing in a way but that to me already seemed more interesting you know it seemed like a like a way of getting getting at history from a from a different angle and it's you know and that's that's a that's 
that idea kind of goes back to people like Walter Benjamin, who's one of my heroes. You know, he's, he always said that you, you, well, he, for one thing, he was a huge believer in walking around and looking at stuff, you know, he was a flaneur. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that he was interested in that, in these kind of random and directionless walks around the city was because he said, if you're looking for history, you won't find it in, in great deeds or great books or, you know, or supposed great events, monumental events, you'll find it in small stuff and you have to keep your eyes and your ears open. You know, he said the, the real picture of the past flits by. It's, it's, a, it's a glimpse. You have to catch it. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the things I try to do. When you sat down to start writing your books, you mentioned um, Culture Club and Entertain Us and your book in between was Hey Nietzsche, Leave, leave Them Kids Alone. When you sat down to, to write these, these books... I mean, obviously, each one's gonna going to have a different kind of uh, you know um, origin story, but this idea, uh, I suppose, of of combining you know your kind of your own philosophical analysis of of music and art and culture, what kind what kind of inspired you to put that into word and to actually create um, create books about you know different subjects, but of these kind of intersections well when it, to speak about that book particularly about 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 hey nietzsche i you know i i grew up loving loving rock music and pop music you know i discovered uh, uh punk and and um and alternative music and then you know that became a big, a big part of my life in the in the 2000s when i was working at, at triple j i was kind of absorbing all this you know all this new music and all these different genres that was com- coming out every week and you know, that alongside the kind of heritage of classic rock that I still, you know, that I still really loved. I would listen, listen to WSFM and things like that on the, on the weekend and, you know, all that stuff still, still moves me. And, and then I felt like when I thought about all of that music as a continuum and when I tried to place it in a, in a historical context, there was one thing that was missing, you know, not that nobody's ever written about this before, but I, but there was a, yeah, a particular angle on it that I felt I was missing or a particular thing about it that, that I felt had not really been explained to me or that I couldn't quite explain to myself, which is, which is really, although I didn't, I didn't know to express it in these terms at that time, it was really a philosophical question. It was what, what, what is the, what is the reason why so much rock and pop and alternative music places so much uh, value in, in feeling, you know, in emotion over, over sense? Why, why is it that, that love is always portrayed in in this kind of music as a sort of unstoppable or uncontrollable force, as a destructive force with tragic consequences. Why is there always this assumption that the that the hero in the songs is a kind of is destined to be a lonely outsider? That there's something about him or her that is fundamentally different from other people in society, and that 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 perspective itself gives them something to say about the world and about about life as it is all these questions you know they can't really be explained by the form of the music or by its or by its kind of uh, musical roots as such they're things that that as i started to dig into it i realized when when i'll back a long way further in history and culture than rock music itself you know like they they pre they predate 1954 or 1952 by a long shot um and I, I, yeah, it was, it was kind of, there was something kind of inevitable about me. I just kept, about it for me, I just kept going, you know, and, and, and where I went eventually took me back to the French Revolution, you know, to, to the, the birth of romanticism in Europe and the ideas that went along with that. And when I got there, I started to see 
to what to me anyway at that time looked like the first time in history or literature that those kind of sentiments started appearing you know there wasn't in other words there wasn't when I, if i went back to to the 1700s there didn't seem to be much in common between the poetry and literature of that time to the the you know what, what is kind of the literature of our time which is which is um which is rock and pop music uh the poetry of our time there didn't seem to be much in common but it, you know as soon as i moved forward to the 19th the early to mid 19th century, it was there already, you know, all of these sentiments that I was talking about. And I was like, okay, so that's, that's already interesting. Why is, you know, why does this, this way of thinking or this style of feeling appear at this time and not before? And why has it remained so strong up to this point? Especially since, you know, when, when I, when the more I started to read about romanticism and the romantic movement, you know, you get the sense that it's a kind of a, as a movement, as a tendency, it's considered done. You know, it's like, okay, well, that's a that was a 19th century style of feeling and thought, which has been sort of, you know, discredited or superseded or, you know, or replaced by other things since. In, you know, in a way, like, like rock music is so, it's a kind of a, it's kind of sealed in amber. You know, it preserves almost all of those statements in a, in, in a very pure form. It's never, romanticism never died in the world of, of, rock music or pop or alternative rock um and i wanted to know why that was so that's yeah that's that's really the reason why the why the book happened mm. and and then and then i wrote it and my friend arthur lawrence um who was one of my teachers at art school uh you know finished and i was like oh what did, what did you think arthur and he said oh, i thought it was good you know but but um but you made a big mistake in not going back to the 12th century i was like god damn it you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> will, this, will this never end yeah anyway and then uh when you when you came to your next book which is about the rise and fall of alternative rock in the 90s, it seems as though you, you're you really starting to look at the way that music kind of evolved and, you know, looking at the way that the music of the 90s would revolt against what kind of preceded it. And also, mm. also about, uh, there was, I read an interesting interview with you where you talked about the idea of history coming to an end be, and, and right. nothing being original. Um, and it really fascinated me. I was wondering if you could um, speak on that sort of point and that topic in, in relation to that book. I, I, feel, I feel like that idea, it was definitely a starting point for me when I sat down to write the book. You know, I thought, I mean, I just moved to Berlin, you know, and and it was, and it was, and it got me thinking about about the effect that the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet bloc in the in the subsequent years, had on on sort of what would you say, like like uh, cultural consciousness, you know, on, on on people's styles of of thinking and feeling during the in the ten years that followed. I mean, it was huge. You know, the the, the rhetoric of the time was extraordinary. There were there was some, you know, that was it was around that time that Francis Fukuyama coined this phrase, the end of history. You know, which is which is widely misunderstood, but it was but it was his way of saying that that human society or human sort of uh, what would you call it political structures might have reached their final form you know that with the end of this of this of this uh conflict with the end of this disparity between these two uh, supposed directions of history he's you know he kind of he coined this phrase as a way of getting people interested in and talking about the idea that that um yeah that, that the timeline as we know it might have come to an end and of course everybody was saying well what next you know like what's what's what, what's supposed to happen now there was this feeling of, of things having come to an end but not knowing what to what what would replace them um there was also you know within youth culture a kind of 
I guess it was a, I guess it was a postmodern crisis. You know, postmodernity had been around for a while. The idea of postmodernity had been around for a while, and it had already informed a lot of a lot of pop music. You know, a lot of um, like David Bowie is kind of would probably be the person who who introduced postmodernity to self-consciously to pop music and all the those kind of um, British uh, new pop and new new wave bands that followed him used that that postmodern approach when they when they made music. I guess you know because the because the American underground was very idealistic and and quite uh, quite politically motivated. It you know it saw itself in quite different terms. So when when it when it became popular, when it became the mainstream, it had to deal with this crisis like, all over again. You know to to consider what it means to be to be postmodern in pop, um, which is really you know the, the simplest way of formulating that. And the bands did this over and over again, which was was to say, how do we how do we live up to history? You know, these are all people who've grown up with with uh, either you know real memories as small children, in the case of someone like Courtney Love, or or kind of secondhand memories from media and, and culture and movies and things like that of what they were told was a great cultural revolution. You know, the the, the antics of '68 or '69 when when youth took over the world and and um, and changed it for good. You know, uh, yeah, they. They they had to deal with the expectation that they that it was kind of expected of a new generation that they would do that too or something like it you know so they were kind of expected to have a or they felt that they were expected to have a revolutionary moment of their own but they were growing up or had grown up in very different circumstances you know in the in the what what in you know, at a time when the the neoliberal society that we now live in was had already taken shape you know after 10 years of reagan and thatcher and all of those kind of things they were they were not living in the in the 60s or 70s anymore but they were kind of expected to do that thing and their culture was was always being assessed by the older generation and by themselves because they were so self-conscious as having to measure up to that you know and that was really hard you know i they on the one hand they found themselves having to repeat earlier moves and that felt you know insincere or or um or uh, kind of, what would you say, like like decadent, you know, to just to just repeat the past. People didn't want to do that to do that either. On the other hand, they um they had this standard to live up to, and in some ways, that was how they how they measured everything they did. How, how would you, as someone who's looked at and very deeply into this kind of um, movement, I suppose? How would you see an artist's success, and how would you define an artist's success? Oh, you mean in that period, like in in the nineties? Who's? I mean, I suppose was... just in general, but um, with uh, I suppose with a kind of slant on that. Well, who is who's successful, or what is success? <sighs> it's a really good question. That is a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think. Um, you know, when I when I when I wrote that book, I found that that as I went, you know, there were people who I started to admire more than others. You know, and and often that surprised me. You know, sometimes there were there were people whose music I hadn't really I didn't really like or care that much about. You know, their their way of working or their their integrity as people and the the, the way they ran their lives and their music started to impress me. And I and I got I had different ideas by the end of the book about what success means. Um, than I than I did at the start, which I guess is good. You know, I learned something. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought I thought a lot about when I was writing it about about integrity. You know, and and this and this question of postmodernity plays a big part in that because you know one of the ways of dealing with 
on the one hand, the, the problem of selling out, you know, the, the idea that you were underground and now you're, you're huge, you know, you're making lots of money because people did make money back then and you're on MTV and you're playing stadiums and, you know, huge touring festivals and all this kind of thing. One of the ways of, of dealing with that, you have to, you can't admit that you failed, like you obviously have, you know, you've, you've given up your principles to some extent. Um, one of the ways of dealing that with that that was very popular at that time was to be ironic, you know, to to take an ironic attitude to your own music and your place within the marketplace, which is, you know, probably the most famous example being um, Kurt Cobain's uh, handmade T-shirt on the cover of Rolling Stone, right? Um, uh, corporate magazines still suck. That's an extremely ironic statement, which would <laughs> go on to, to spawn many more. It was a way of saying, I know I've failed, I've let you down, and you know that I know that I have, let's not kid ourselves, you know, like this, maybe this is a way that we can, we can proceed, you know, and, and, and irony plays a big role in postmodern postmodernism. That's kind of how we, how artists have dealt with and have been, and at that time had been dealing with the failure of modernism and modernity in a bigger sense for, for 20 years leading up to that point. So, yeah, but the, I mean, the problem with irony is that it's kind of, you know, there's different kinds, like there's, there's, this critical irony, which which I think can be productive sometimes, you know, and it was certainly very productive in the in the Romantic and Modernist period. It's where you where you use irony as a way of saying things that you can't say with a straight face, or that 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 you know that where, which things which are just too huge or too absurd to be able to criticize head on. You have to go around them, you know, as as it were. Uh, yeah, I think irony can be useful. It's in its in its postmodern variant, you know, which there was a, which there was a lot in the in the nineties, which the the British bands like Blur especially were very very guilty of. It's a way of of letting yourself off the hook for almost any stupid thing that you might care to do. You know, like you can always you can always do the thing and give your audience a wink and a nudge as if to say, I know you know I shouldn't be doing this, but look, aren't we clever? We all know, you know, and I'm and it's like I'm protesting against the thing while also doing it. I mean, it's kind of bullshit, right? And we all know it is. Yeah. Um, and we're supposed to be post-ironic now, so so we don't do it anymore except we do. I, <laughs> yeah, so so I you know, and it's not like like at the, you know, by by the end of the '90s, there was a crisis of irony as well. There were there were people saying enough irony. You know, we, we, it's, it's a just as I've said now. They said it's a, it's a shield. It's like a way of of protect of protecting yourself and not adhering to your beliefs, which is true. Um, but also, it's not that easy to make it go away. You can't just wave a magic wand and go, you know, no more irony. Because, I mean, the emo would like to do that. You know, that's that's what it would like to have done. It it emo tried to be post ironic, um, and ended up being being the most ironic thing of all. You can't, you can't, you can't wish it away. You can't just run away from it and pretend that it's not there. But, but I do think you know, being aware of that problem and kind of uh, like understanding that that if if you're going to be ironic, that if we live in ironic times and it's you know and, and it's it's impossible not to be, if you're going to use it as a device or as a as a structure, you still have to be aware of what it is that you're trying to say or what you're using irony for. In other words, it can't just be a, you know, a, a, a catch-all um, screen for, you know, to excuse your, your failures. And so I, I liked, you know, I, by the end of the book, I liked, I found that I liked artists who had either, either maintained their principles to such a degree that they didn't have to be ironic, of which, you know, Riot Girl is the obvious example. You know, Kathleen Hanna is, is, was, you know, was when I was writing that book and still is, to this day, my hero, as far as music is concerned, you know, that's a that's a person who who stuck to her principles in in the face of an awful lot of bullshit, you know, like like commercial enticements and you know like uh, encouragements to go down that road, but also a lot of a lot of obviously a lot of um, institutionalized sexism and, and prejudice and all those kind of things. Yeah, who who never never had to be ironic about what she did, 
she could be sometimes, but she never had to be because she always knew where she stood, you know, and 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 could could say when she looked back on what she'd done, I I stuck by what I believed in, you know, because and I think this is this is what it gets down to because she she saw music as having goals other than music, you know, um, which is a controversial, like to say that I admire that is a controversial thing to say, because I don't, I don't think that music should be utilitarian either. I don't think of it as a, as a tool to get things done, because if it is, it's kind of, it's not very good at that, you know, but I do think it's important for artists, the artists I admire, the ones who are successful, perhaps to answer your question, are the people who, who see their work in a bigger picture, who are, who, who never hide behind who don't hide behind irony, who don't hide behind the idea of art for art's sake, who understand that their work happens in a context, in a social and cultural context, and feel responsible to that and for that for some to some degree. They're the people who, yeah, for me, when I look at what they've done, I say, good work, well done. Do you see that <clears throat> art can affect change in the world and in society? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it can't not you know it's it, it's uh i mean just to go back to to kathleen hannah you know she said something once which i which which i really love which she said a lot of things that i love in in 2000 around 2002 she did an interview with with the wire um after a la tigra album had just come out and she said you know people always people always criticize us or criticize me and criticize this band for for making political art you know like as though as though we forget about the art and focus too much on the politics um and she said that that uh, the, the problem with that statement is that it, it fails to acknowledge that all art is political, you know, and that if you're if you're making art about your emotions or about about um, landscape or about uh, you know the tragic position of the outsider in society or, or whatever, you are kind of you are you are making political statements. It's just that they're, they're actually quite reactionary and conservative ones. You know, you are you are propping up the dominant ideology the dominant way of seeing the world which is created not just through politics and through through social acts but also very much in our world through popular culture you're contributing to that you think you're just expressing yourself or, or rebelling or something like that actually you're just doing what everybody else does and that is that you know that that is also political it's and i think i think that's absolutely true and <clears throat> In my, in my, I, I teach a university class here, and one of the one of the, the um, <laughs> texts that we work from is uh, is Katy Perry's um, firework video. Have you ever seen that? Ah, uh, not for a long time, but yes, I have. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's a that's a pretty good example of what of what we're talking about. I guess that that is that video isn't a. She probably doesn't think of it like that, and the the people who made it didn't think of it like that. But that that video is an advertisement for an ideology. It says. It says that if the world is getting you down, you know, if life in contemporary America is making you feel small and embattled and like you have no no power or no hope, um, there is an answer, you know, and the answer is to be found within you, within your heart, because you're a very special person. And if you if you let what is special about you shine through, you know, to come out of you like a firework, literally in the video, uh, then you will, you know, you will transcend your crappy circumstance and lead a happy and fulfilled life, you know, which is like it's it's. That's a, that's a very popular belief, and it's you know, and we don't have to go as 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 uh, as far as Katy Perry to see it. You know, that's that's an idea that is transmitted through a lot of rock music, a lot of a lot of alternative rock music, a lot of punk music, a lot of dance music. You know, this we hear this sentiment over and over again. I mean, that is basically neoliberalism, isn't it? That's that's music to the to the dominant ideologies ears. <laughs> And and I think you know so I, so when I when I hear, when I see and hear things like that I think very much of what what Kathleen Hannah said. So to answer your question, I would say yes. You know, music 
music, just to talk about music, can change can change the world. It has already changed the world. It's it's created the myths that help to create the myths that we all believe and that that make our our society and our culture work in the way it does. It's not. It's you know. It's mostly terrible, but music. You know, m- music has changed the world. It's really mostly, uh... for the, mostly for the worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um. You mentioned to, to kind of bring things back to you personally. You mentioned that you know you were working on an article for the ABC. This is a big segue away from um, what we've just been talking about. But I'm interested to hear a little bit about how you've managed to kind of maintain and balance, uh, you know, a kind of international career now that you live in Berlin, and um, I guess you're you're still doing work for uh, for people like the ABC, and you're still writing. Um, yeah, back home. I mean, I mean, here I'll say I have to be very honest and say that I haven't. You know, like, like I think I'm, I'm really, I've, I'm not good at that at all. I kind of, I mean, the, the, you know, the. <clears throat> you, I'm sure you know. I'm sure you've had this experience too. You know, as much as we are connected nowadays, we are. You know, we all we all look at each other's faces and lives on the internet every morning, and it's, it feels like, you know, sometimes I feel like I never left Australia. Um, because I see and hear so much of what is going on there. Uh, nevertheless, you know, if I'm not in people's faces and if I'm not in in their social world, if I if I don't run into people in corridors and at you know at events and parties and gigs and things like that, then then you know I don't think I'm not on their mind as much. You know, that's 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 I don't mean this to sound like a sob story. It's just true. Like like. Do you find this like that? that yeah, you yeah to, definitely. If you move away, you need to make a bit more of an effort to go. Hey, I'm still over here. You know, I could, mm. I could write a thing. I could be whatever. Yeah, and I, and I, and and to be honest, I just, I don't, I probably don't make the effort to do that as much as I should. You know, because and the, you know, and the proof of that isn't that you know, whenever I do go back to Australia, I was there in December, and and all of a sudden, you know, all this, all this Australia work just kind of appeared. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So this this magazine article is one you know one thing that came out of it you know a few a few other things yeah it's not a it's not a coincidence it's just that I was there right I was running into people I was catching up with people they were like oh you know you should talk to this guy he needs a yeah this this sort of stuff it's it's very it's um I find it I found anyway that that's that hasn't that experience hasn't been entirely replaced um I think you know uh, things like one I guess one of the one of the reasons why I might have wanted to put a bomb under my life and move to the other side of the world is because things were had gotten a little bit cozy for me at the at the ABC it's a very um very privileged and bourgeois thing to say but you know anyway that's there there was yeah I you know I've always wanted to work at the BBC or to work for for you know other other broadcasters in the world that I admire um I don't know that I would have gotten off my ass to try and do it if I if I'd stayed in in Sydney at my my job there but you know as it turns out that's one of the things that living in Europe has brought me, you know, I could work, I could produce this um, series with uh, that I just finished making with Sam Simmons for uh, BBC Radio 4, a comedy, a four-part comedy series, which was, you know, was it would have been impossible for me to do that if I still lived in Australia as it was. You know, Berlin is not so far away from London. I can I can fly over there to to do recording work or to to do script editing or, you know, or to, to help with mixing and things like that. And and that was essential to the process and, and it turned out very well, you know. So, yeah, so, so I've, I've had to, I've had to kind of, rebuild a lot of a lot of things um and and in a way you know my career has 
has changed a lot. Like, I, like I've, I've found that I can get a lot more work here as a teacher, you know, than, than doing other kinds of work. So that's what I've been doing. You know, my, 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 my career or my practice, if you like, has kind of moved a bit more in that direction. So, so I'm, and, and I like that, you know, that makes me very, um, I'm very, very, it's very satisfying. And again, I don't know that I would have done that if, if, um, if I'd stayed in Sydney. Speaking before about uh, how how one might define a successful band, uh, particularly in the '90s, how would you define personal success? Do you feel as though your career to date has been a success? Is it a kind of evolving idea for you, or is it something that you're still striving for? Mm. Um, I like. Uh, I guess when I look back on it, I like that it's a bit of a. A bit of a hot mess you know like like it's that it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't really hang together you know and i think that's that's good it probably it probably i'd probably get more work if it did you know if, if it did if it did have a, a more cohesive shape um it probably, it probably confuses people yeah uh there's 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 those there's a few moments i think where where i've felt like i said what i wanted to say you know like like the and i think about the writing the last draft of the last chapter of entertain us which took forever by the way and and uh and i'm i have to give credit the credit is due to my amazing editor susan morris yates who, who's edited all my books and is absolutely ruthless about about getting me to say what it is i'm trying to say you know if she, if she i mean talk about hiding behind irony i do it all the time you know like like i think i think if i've ended a chapter with a with a an interesting juxtaposition or a or a, a good joke or a you know a little um a little surprising but interesting transition that I've I've made the statement you know I tell myself that I I I get to the end of it and I'm like oh that feels good you know I feel good I'm you know I I am very tempted by that idea of just kind of leaving things in front of the reader or the listener and going you put it together you know which sounds like I'm being generous but sometimes I'm just I'm letting myself off the hook you know I'm not not saying what it is that I want to say when I do have something to say and Susan's amazing she always she always knew when I was doing that and and especially about this this last chapter she was like you you know you've written this book up to this point in order to say something and now you need to say it and you, you're not going to like you don't get to go home until you've, <laughs> until you've done it you know and but but when i when i think about about stuff i'm stuff that is as you say successful that's that to me is that you know for exactly the same reason now that i think about it that i that i came to admire certain artists or certain bands in the course of writing the book you know because 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 I said what I wanted to say because I had the, the, the courage of my convictions, you know, and, and, and worked hard to make sure that that came across, you know, to the best of my ability. That's, that's, yeah, that felt, that felt really good. There's other things, you know, other things are not so predictable. Like there's, there's things that I've worked on for a year, which ended up, you know, making no sense at all. And I never listened to them again. There's, there's other things, you know, like, like a, a sketch that I made with Sam back in, back in, um, 2008 that I still regard as perfect, you know, like, like a thing that for whatever reason, just, just fell into place in a matter of an hour and a half. And, and I listened to it and go, that's, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to say. I didn't know in advance that I was, that I, that I wanted to do that. It just kind of happened and you need to be, need to be grateful for those things too. So yeah, it's a, it's the things that I regard as successful or things I'm proud of are probably a weird mix of stuff I've worked super, super hard at and other things that, that, um, that just, you know, fell in my lap. <laughs> mm, I think that's, I think that's probably the way I can, I can certainly relate to that. Uh, really? You know, some, yeah. some of the, some of the bigger projects that I've done uh, in my 
in my career have been things that just kind of I fell into or that 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 I happened upon uh, and that's not to say that I wasn't prepared for those moments but you know they were sometimes happy happy accidents um, yeah. and maybe it's because you're not you're not analyzing it or you or or I'm not kind of super conscious of what's going on I'm just kind of letting it's like if you're you know if you're an athlete and you trained and you trained yeah and all of a sudden the ball comes to you and you manage to score a bicycle kick goal you're not necessarily in the motions of thinking about what you're doing but it all just kind of clicks into gear yeah yeah I think that's true and also also I wonder sometimes if those longer projects you know are kind of um preparation for a thing that you don't know you're doing yet like like that I mean that happens a lot with with teaching you know I'll, I'll spend I'll spend weeks putting together a, a multimedia presentation that I'm going to as a public lecture here, you know, uh, and get to the end of it and go, Oh my God, that was a shambles. You know, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't say what I wanted to say. I didn't feel like it, like it communicated well enough. And also I didn't have any fun, you know, it was just, it, it's yeah, it's just unsatisfying. And then I'll go and give a lecture, kind of an off the cuff, you know, uh, not a lecture, but like a workshop or a classroom talk on the same subject a week later. And, and it all just, you know, <laughs> it's like, like that's to me it, it, at the end of it, I think that is exactly what I wanted to say, you know, and, and that's frustrating, but then also I think, well, maybe, maybe the first thing was the preparation for the second one. It's a bit of a shame that, you know, that people had to pay money for the, for the first one, not the second <laughs> one, but, but um, it's a shame for them. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's, that does, that does happen. I think. Well, I've really, uh, I've really loved chatting with you, Craig. I mean, I, I, I wasn't too familiar with, uh, with the sort of things that you'd been doing uh, or, or associating them to you, anyway. Um, and it's been a real, real joy and pleasure to, to speak with you. Um, and I'm very grateful for your time, and for, um, for all of your insights. I end, uh, I end every conversation with a standard question, and that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? You mean what what makes me behave in a silly way or what is silly about me? Whichever whichever of those two you'd like to uh, delve into. Uh, okay, well, well, I would say what makes me silly is that is probably the thing we discussed before is my my innate conviction that that um that whatever I'm doing, like whatever I'm writing about or speaking about, has to include everything that has uh, been said or written about has to canvas everything that has been said or written or thought about that subject up to that point. You know, that is a deeply silly idea, which <laughs> impulse, which, which has caused me a lot of trouble in the past. And, um, and I really wish that I could stop doing it. That's, that's something very silly that I do. Uh, what, what makes me silly is, is like behave in a silly way is definitely music. Like the, you know, not long after I, well, about, um, about three years ago, I started a, a band here in Berlin um, with a singer named Lani Bagley. It's called Ducks. And 
And I didn't know this at the time. At the time, I was kind of, you know, I knew she was a singer and I liked her work and, and she'd heard some of the stuff I do. And, I, and we were like, okay, well, maybe I could produce some tracks and you could sing. And, you know, it, I very quickly realized it, it, you know, it'd become much more than that. And the reason it became more than that is because, is because it was silly. You know, it's, it's, it is ridiculous and has been ridiculous. I don't think the music is ridiculous, but making it is ridiculous. It's gratuitous and, and like, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, we, we spent an hour and a half recording, like contact micing a, a cactus and, and playing it through a, through a, like a little, you know, a little um, Korg analog synthesizer the other night. And that made me happier than, than quite a lot of things have in the, in the, in the last six months. I can't tell you what that's for or what it's, you know, or what it will do for anybody else. It was just, um, it was just, you know, a few minutes of, of unadult, unadulterated joy. The, the difficulty is kind of translating this this experience into the thing that the person listens to, of course, you know, and um, and that's where I keep the example of Basement Jacks in mind. They're one of my favourites. Uh, I remember a long time ago producing an interview that they did with Mel Bampton on Triple J when I was producing producing her show, and one of the questions that we wrote was the pretty obvious one, you know, how do you make your music? I mean, I know that's, that seems kind of dull, but but I was really curious. You know, I've been listening to the the album they just made um, and, and I thought it was astounding, but I had no idea how human beings could make music that sounded like that. You know, it's this this kaleidoscopic collage work of, of thousands of sounds put together into this incredibly compulsive dance music. Um, yeah, I really wanted to know, and she did too. And, and as soon as she asked the question, I regretted it because they kind of looked at each other and they went and they said, it's so boring, you wouldn't believe it. Like, it's so dull. <laughs> That, that you would fall asleep within a minute of me trying to explain it. And that's true, right? It's, you know, the, the, but, but, but I've since learned that all that hard work, the hard work that they do is, is meant to, to recreate the feeling that they had on the first few club nights that they used to play in London when they, they were playing a night which by their own admission was chaos. You know, it was like, like just, just a, a shambles, you know, but, a, but the most fun shambles in the history of, of dance music. And, and the, that feeling of like, you know, stuff being unplugged and you know drinks getting spilled over mixes and chaos and you know songs slamming into each other and everything which is not really translatable to the outside world you know the, the feeling of those kind of nights was what they worked really hard to put back into their music at the receiving end so that kind of silliness i guess is what i what i aspire to in music anyway is what i aspire to to recreate at the other end mm, long live silliness in the creative process i'm all about it yeah yeah <laughs> thank you so much craig Thanks, Alistair. It's been it's been a pleasure.